You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning. Welcome to the show. It is Friday, April the 1st, and although still chilly, it's brightened up a shade here in TW11 as we approach uh, another good weekend here in the UK. Plenty of international chat later in the show, but first of all, focusing on what's happening here, and it is Scottish National Weekend, Coral Scottish National Weekend, where Jane Mangan, RTE and Racing TV broadcast, will be on duty for ITV. She is indeed a woman of many, many hats. Jane, are you looking forward to taking the high road this weekend? Of course. I'm fresh from my trip to Kelso. I'm getting a tour of Scotland. And this weekend, we're 24 runners for the Scottish Grand National. It's just a little bit of a puzzle to, to find, isn't it? Well, I'm going to be accompanied by three Irish runners. Um, a lot of, obviously, decent staying chasers. The Scottish National is a race I've always watched from the comfort of home, but I'm going to be well wrapped up this weekend because it's like it's going to be chilly, Nick Luck. It's going to be cold, but what's going to warm you up if you've got your punting boots on? Uh, well, I'm a big fan of vintage clouds. I think the younger guns are going to shine. I have to take Kitty's life very seriously for Christian Williams, only six-year-old. Fantastic as I thought was very good um, last time when... I suppose he didn't really quite get home in the Ultima. I think he's got a better chance um, this weekend. I have a lot of respect for Pat Fahey, Stormy Judge as well. He's bringing over two. Philip Enright is going to write height of fashion, but I think the pick for him is Stormy Judge. But there are only a few of horses with many chances. And then throw in the fact the Scottish champion hurdle. I was on West Coast in the county. He ran well without ever looking like he was going to win. Dusart in the handicap. There's quite a, a, a lot for fans to get their teeth stuck into this weekend. Well, the man who appears to have a stranglehold on the Scottish National is the Welshman Christian Williams with his uh, two horses, Kitty's Light and Win My Wings, dominating the market somewhat. Uh, Kitty's Light, diminutive, but very tough. Good second last time. And Win My Wings, well, just cantered home in the Ida first time in a real proper marathon trip. And uh, crack Irish amateur Rob James gets the sit, taking seven pounds off. Christian's with me now. You're up at air. How excited are you and the whole team about this Scottish National Big Christian? Uh, brilliant, Nick. You know, this is uh, this is all about a long, long drive yesterday, but, you know, great excitement the whole way up. And, you know, even waking up this morning, we um, th this meeting's got bigger and bigger over the years. And, you know, three or four years ago, you always hoped you'd have a nice team of horses to be able to bring you. And this is the first, this is the first year that we managed to find four horses um, that we think can be competitive running at, at the meeting. And I suppose with the, the two that dominate the market in the Scottish National, I mean, Kitty's like 11 stone eight, win my wings 11 five. Now, I know you take seven off with, with Rob James, but if I told you at the beginning of the year, Kitty's Light's only going to have to give win my wings three pounds, what would you have said? <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, um, I was struggling to start the week to think how win my wings could get competitive after going up. She went up six pound for winning the Ida, and she was already two pound well in that day, so she's off an eight pound higher mark. So I was scratching my head there, thinking how she could um, she could close the gap on Kitty's light. But you know, the more you think of it, then we 
couldn't with Rob James' experience riding over fences, probably ridden two, three hundred point to point winners, so and he's ridden in all the amateur races at the Cheltenham, so we thought it was a good plan then. And the more you think about it, taking the seven pound off with Rob's claim, you know, running off the nearly the same mark she won the she won the Ida chase very impressively mm. you'd obviously give her a chance then at, at the weight and the only small negative you could pick with Kitty Slight is is the weight he's got to carry for, for the size of horse but you know he's a very classy horse finished second in the Charlie Hall off level weights and um, we targeted this race at the start of the season we thought that it may, may cut up a little bit you know it's very competitive but Looks very winnable as well with the, with the dates this year, with the change in the dates, with the with the Grand National only being a week away, and it's obviously um, you know we've obviously found ourselves carrying plenty of weight with Kitty's light, but um, you know we think a track will suit him. We didn't want to step him up in distance until this time of year because he probably wants a nice bit of ground. So we stuck to Kempton throughout the winter, but the ground doesn't get too soft. But you'd, you'd like to think this this track and this distance would suit him better than than what he's been running over throughout the winter. I mean, I, I mean, I don't want to try and make you sound even cleverer than than people make you sound. But have you been basically been shimmying shimmying around with these horses, trying to say avoid Cheltenham and avoid Aintree, and 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 try and pick the prizes that perhaps other people aren't targeting? Yeah, we obviously have a bit of an ambition that we we want to train Cheltenham winners and compete against. You know, there's a Gordon Elliott, William Mullins, Paul Nichols, etc. But we just don't feel we're in a place at the moment to do that. We, we've got a, you know, we've got five or six very good horses, and and we 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 won the Midlands National with Potter's Corner a few years ago, good prize money, and then we obviously targeted the um, the Coral Chaser Kemp, and then and obviously the Coral Scottish National with with other horses. But it, <clears throat> we obviously don't want to shy away that we're not. Um, you know, our burning ambition is to train Charlton winners. So hopefully, in in a few years to come, we'll have a team big and strong enough to to do that as well. Uh, in your heart of hearts, which ho- which of these horses do you think is going to run better? I don't think it'd be fair to. I couldn't get away from Kitty's light neck, but um, um, this is this has been the plan. But every time you watch the Ida Chase back, you can't help but be impressed. You know, she's the first mare to win the Ida Chase. You couldn't help but be impressed. The way you, you could pick her, you could pick her out the winner with the, with the circuit to go, and um, I don't know how many times that happens in those big staying chases. She was very impressive, and obviously taking the weight off her, you know, I think you give her a big chance. But you know, Kitty's a very good horse, and she she'll need to be on her on her game. But they're both looking well, and it'd be tough, be be hard to split them now. Nick wouldn't be fair, and um, owned by two two separate owners, and this has been a plan with Kitty's lights, but you couldn't. Um, you could not not let the mayor run in the race. You know she deserves to. You know she she deserves to to be given a chance of winning the Scottish National. Christian Williams there potentially with the Scottish National uh, at his feet, reluctant to be drawn into comparisons between Kitty's Light and Win My Wings. Understandably so. Jane, you'll be looking toward Ireland as well this weekend, and some important flat horses running at Leopardstown. Uh, the Bally Sacks, obviously, we start there. Obviously, you have the two guineas trials, but I think the airfield stakes from last year is going to be um, an important po- pointer to the Derby this year because I'm a big fan of Piz Badil. I have been since he won his maiden back in July in Killarney. He was really just narrowly denied 
by Duke de Sassa at um, Leopardstown in the Airfield Stakes of Dermot Wells. So throw in the fact that Aidan O'Brien is running Bluegrass, the Galileo de Quiet Reflection, who won his maiden over a mile at the Curra. Joseph O'Brien's Buckaroo, something suggests to me that he's going to be better at three, albeit he was beaten uh, quite comprehensively in the group one at the at San Clue at the back end of last year. Joseph O'Brien then runs three in the 1,000 Guineas trial, Agartha uh, probably being the pick of those, but I'm not losing faith in Sacred Bridge. She might have been well beaten by Tenebrism at Newmarket, but she's better than we saw that day. And uh, I think Sacred Bridge for Colin Keane and Ger Lyons could be a genuine classic contender. Go to the 2000 Guineas trial at Leopardstown. Dr. Zemp could give them a double. Don't forget Glanton. He's a classy horse. He was uh, good when he beat Penine Hills at Leopardstown. And I think he's better than... We saw him in Delmar behind modern games where he didn't really show up. But that's not uncommon in the Breeders' Cup, in, particularly in the juvenile events. Glanton, Dr. Zempf, the flat is really back. It is. I mean, at this stage, if you were to have a, a 1,000, 2,000, Newmarket I'm talking, 1,000, 2,000 guineas double, Jane, I said to you now, right, here you go, here's 50 quid, have a double on the two races, what would it be? It would be Inspiral in the Phillies division. I, I find it difficult to pick holes in her armour. In the 2000 Guineas division, I like, I do like Luxembourg. I actually was saw Matakura uh, post-race working, but it's hard to get away from the Royal Blue of Godolphin. Uh, you're all over Caribus, so I, I just cannot agree, you know, it would be, that would be a boring <laughs> synopsis. Why don't I just pick the champion two-year-old Colt and just keep it boring with Native Trail? Well, you could do. I mean, you've already nailed your colours to the Luxembourg Mass, and I'd, I'd expect nothing less. As I said earlier in the week, Aidan O'Brien's trained 17 Guineas winners. So there you go, 1,000 and 2,000, that is, at Newmarket. I'm not even talking about all the Irish ones and the French ones. Yeah, well, he's, he, you know, the, the, these are the top horses. We're, we're picking basically the top three or four uh, rated two-year-olds from last year. So we're, we're really keeping it on original. But had you asked me last year, I wouldn't have picked um, Poetic Flair. So... It'll be interesting to see between now and then how the trials will develop. But we do know that Luxembourg is going to go straight there. So we're taking completely on Aidan O'Brien's word. And um, uh, yeah, it's it's a really exciting time of year. But I, I, I listened to Lydia during the week and she said that her brain wasn't quite in it. And I uh, completely understand that. I'm still in Aintree mode, Fairy House, Punchestown. There's lots on the horizon. I'm not quite adjusting yet. Well, if you're in Aintree mode, then, can you give me a winner of the Randolph's Grand National a, a week tomorrow? Because, of course, all of next week we'll be devoting the show to, to what's going to win the Grand National. Uh, do you have your, your preliminary idea? After the cross-country chase at Cheltenham, I thought, I said it at the time, the freeze frame of Tiger Roll dejected and Delta Work um, victorious. I think it was a changing of the guard, and I think Delta Work could be the horse to take over Tiger's mantle. Well, he's cat-like over those cross-country fences. If he adapts like that to Aintree, and clearly Gordon Elliott thinks it's a good route, then he's just such a good horse to be running in that race, isn't he? He's a 160 horse. He's a horse a lot of us thought would be a Gold Cup contender. He is multiple grade one winner. And I, do you know what I thought was notable at the cross-country discipline? Many, many jockeys, most jockeys, would lower their stirrup irons for that discipline for the cross-country race you would put down your irons just to play it safe in case your horse made a mistake jack kennedy did not change his riding style he was still riding the same length as he rode zana here in the champion hurdle to delta work over banks and ditches 
that was the confidence he had in his jumping. And the fact that the horse traveled through the race, obviously he was going three or four gears slower than he would have had to in the Savile's Chase or an Irish Gold Cup. But the fact that he took to it so naturally suggests Aintree is just going to be right up his street. Okay, let's talk about put the kettle on because the champion chase and Arkle winner is going to be put through the sale ring this week by her enthusiastic group of syndicate owners. They say they do so with a, with a heavy heart. They've been criticised in some quarters for not, not keeping her, Jane. Is that criticism in any way warranted? I don't think so. Uh, I understand, maybe people don't understand the full picture that this isn't uncommon. Um, some owners race their horses with never having the view to to breeding from them. And that, of course, is put the kettle on's future. She's got a huge uh, value now as a broodmare. And it is particularly common in the world of syndicates where it gets messy when a horse retires and if they were to go breeding, who looks after and care costs and whatnot. So while it has worked for the Hammer and Trowel Syndicate, they have retained Quivega and they have produced Facile Vega and he is running in their colours. But we only saw it yesterday at the Goffs UK sale. Sky Ace, the mare that was bought for £600 out of Willie Mullins' yard, goes on to win a Grade 1 novice hurdle for Shark Hanlon. She sold yesterday for £80,000. Actually, Shark Hanlon bought her for another owner, but that's just one example. And put the kettle on. As you mentioned, dual grade one winner over fences and the only mare to win the champion chase. She's complete outcross from Saddler's Wells blood. She must be of considerable interest to breeders. So I can imagine the Dermody family who uh, owned her as a syndicate throughout her racing career. They have always known that this was probably going to be the way to go. They've come to this decision and I would not criticize them one bit for it. it. Rich Ritchie has sold his mares. Annie Power, Room Room Mag, uh, Benny Dejo, they, they've all been sold. Apples Jade was sold uh, last year. So I, I wouldn't, I think the criticism is unwarranted. And she's an exciting addition to the entry sale next week. Yeah, and they've all got terrific homes as well, and people who are spe- specialists in breeding horses. And you're not going to be going in at that sort of level unless you absolutely know what you're doing and you're going to be doing the best uh, for those thoroughbreds. Put the kettle on who will move to new hands and move to a new career very shortly. And Jane, perhaps the final word on this podcast to you uh, as regards the Robbie Dunn appeal. Lydia's written a very good piece on sportinglife.com. Lee's polemic on this podcast yesterday, which I would urge you to go back and listen to, was similarly uh, persuasive. They were both following every bit of the appeal the day before yesterday. I wasn't. I know from what you've read, you've you've got a view. Uh, And it seems a sort of prevailing uh, feeling out of the appeal was that some of the way that it was carried out, some of the language that was used and, and the tone that it, that it set was at, at sharp right angles, not only to what you might expect from a procedure carried out in 2022, but also to the way in which the original hearing was conducted, which whether you agree with the verdict or not, was at least conducted with a, a degree of um, sensitivity and and professionalism um how did it leave you feeling all of this it left me worried about the future and should anybody find themselves in a a similar position what they might do or not do perhaps more importantly the fact just reading everybody's synopsis of the case of the appeal 
it, it sounded rushed. It sounded like QC Matthews was in control and led the narrative. It sounded like Louis Weston was on the back foot. As you say, regardless of what we think of the verdict, of the results, um, I think what's important now is what precedent this sets for the future. What would the natural instinct for somebody who finds himself in a position, a similar position in the future, what would they do? And the easiest thing to do would be to sit and suffer in silence. And that is exactly what modern society is trying to stamp out. Yet here we are asking why the victim didn't knock heads with the accused. I, I, I find like it was, it was a difficult read, never mind a difficult experience. Yeah, and as I said, you can read more of that on sportinglife.com, Lydia's column, and on this podcast yesterday, if you just continue to the end and just let it roll along, you'll hear a very uh, powerful um, testimony from Lee Mottishead, who sat through all of the appeal the day before yesterday. All right, serious racing this weekend in Australia at Randwick, uh, New South Wales, a quartet of group or grade one races, and the horse you'll be most familiar with because he's a bit of a star on this show. Uh, is his nature strip, but he's bidding to bounce back a little bit, and we're hoping we'll see him in the King Stand later in the year. And uh, the Doncaster Mile is the is the feature. Jay McGrath is here to talk us through the racing in in Sydney. You've been down in Oz for for a little while now, Croc as well, bringing us all the news from there and from and from Hong Kong. This is a big day at Randwick. It's a really big day, Nick, and there's a sigh of relief here in Sydney, where I am at the moment, uh, because uh, it's there's been just a little bit of relief in the weather. It's been raining. Uh, in fact, they've had more rainfall in Sydney the first three months of the year than they normally have uh, over the entire year. So that gives you some idea of just how much, uh, how saturated Randwick must be. But they've had a little bit of a break in the weather this afternoon. They inspected the track. Uh, when I say this afternoon, I mean Friday afternoon. And they inspected the track and uh, they are, you know, they're, they're happy. Uh, they're happy with it and it's uh, scheduled to go ahead. Okay, good stuff. So let's talk about Nature Strip. It's not really been going his way i mean the defeat to home affairs and then he had to run in very bad ground is the ground a worry again for him i don't think so much the the ground has been the worry i think it's more the distance and tomorrow it'll be 1200 meters which is a six furlongs don't forget he's going for his third successive tj smith a, a group one sprint and uh, you know he's he's got a lot in his favor uh, except for the draw he's drawn 11 of 11 which is wide uh, and there's a, a school of thought that he may be able to just slot in and, and, and just be able to pick off these leaders, but it's harder than you, you think in theory. Uh, but just the same, he's going well, and there's a, a strong feeling that he's going to be able to turn the tables on his old rival, Eduardo, uh, who won last start. Uh, the horse that split them on that occasion was a, a horse who's got a cult following here, a horse called Shelby 66. Now, he was a country performer only a few months ago. All of a sudden, he's just taken off. He's run the last, I think he, he ran five consecutive weeks and he won two group races in that time and he's got a real cult following. He's a rags to riches story, which everyone loves in Australia. Uh, and he uh, he's going to carry a lot of support. He's about the third favourite here. But Nature Strip, I think, is might just come back on top this time. 
Okay, and the big race itself, the Doncaster Mile, Jim, what can we expect from that race this year? Well, you've got a full field of 20. It's a handicap. It's a compressed handicap. Last year's winner, Cascadian, is in the race. Uh, but James McDonald riding, but carries tap, top weight at this time. And when I say but, I mean that Jamie Carr, who was aboard last year when Cascadian had a very light weight, has now uh, jumped on the favourite. And uh, that is Forbidden Love, who's now won her last three. She comes in with a light weight. This is a handicap. It's about handicaps, and it's also about horses who handle heavy ground and uh, uh, this horse who's put together three wins now Forbidden Love, she does handle it but there's a couple of horses that people in Europe will know and they're both Irish. One is Law of Indices who, who won the uh, the Prix Jean Pratt for uh, Ken Condon on very soft ground at Deauville. He's quoted at an enormous price. He's about a 33 to 1 chance at the moment. The other one who's even longer in betting is Numerian who you'll remember ran for Joseph O'Brien and if you go back right into, into his uh, uh, record, you'll see that he actually beats Sir Dragonet in a, a listed race at Nace, going back on a soft and heavy uh, heavy ground much earlier in his career. He's with Annabelle Neesham. In fact, both horses are with Annabelle Neesham, and she's very much the flavour of the month here. They could each run a really big race, a cheeky race, at long odds. But Forbidden Love is the favourite. The other one to keep in mind is I'm Thunderstruck, uh, which is Huey Bowman's uh, ride. And uh, I'm Thunderstruck was second last time in the All-Star Mile and could just make a real race of it. And second, of course, to our old friend Zaki, also trained by Annabelle Nisham. Jim, thanks so much. Uh, we will catch up later later in the week. Okay. All right, it's Friday, so it's time for the weekly check on the Thoroughbred Racing Commentary Global Rankings. Of course, James Willoughby will be here very shortly. First of all, though, time to recap the top 10. I'll just edge slightly out of the top 10. I'll maybe give you the top 12 just to take stock of some of what happened in Dubai. At 12 is Hot Rod Charlie, solid at 12, the Dubai World Cup runner-up. 11 is the now-retired Essential Quality, and 10 is the Hong Kong star, Golden 60, just gradually easing his way down the rankings. Nine is Australian Melbourne Cup winner, very elegant, could be set for another good campaign. Animo for Australia, very impressive. Last week in the Sky Racing Active Rose Hill Guineas at Rose Hill on very heavy ground at eight. Seven is Zaki off the back of that recent win. And the horse that Zaki beat, as you've just heard from the croc, could frank the form and shove Zaki further up the rankings if winning at Randwick this weekend. Six is Japanese Triple Crown winner Contrail. Five is Nature Strip, who also runs in Australia tomorrow, but to get uh, the reputation back on track. Four is Gran Allegria. Three is the now retired Nick's Go. Now, this is getting very interesting because it is as tight as it can possibly be at the top. Euphoria is only uh, a Nat's whisker behind Life is Good at the top two and one. The Dubai World Cup winner retains the top spot, but James clinging on by the skin of his teeth after what I would conjecture was a, a rather listless display in the desert. Yeah, I mean, you know, to remind your listeners, this is an automated system. This is a machine learning system with no human interference. I was certain that life is good would be demoted from the top spot in favor of the Japanese star Euphoria, who's incidentally running on uh, Sunday. But it didn't happen just because, um, for first and foremost, life is good's previous form 
remains as it was. So in other words, the machine has not back handicapped, not lowered his previous ratings to make him fit more with this performance. What effectively the machine is saying is that this doesn't really fit with his previous form. And what the machine does not know, obviously, that the way he ran, but we could put our interpretation on that as analysts and say, well, he just didn't get home probably. I know the early fractions in American terms weren't strong. They were basically, they, they ran to the beat of 12 early on, which normally would be uh, considered a slow pace. But that track, as was the case in Saudi, was probably riding a little on the, the, the deeper side for that particular, for the, for the World Cup anyway. Um, and I think that the, the way the race was contested in the middle sections, that race within a race that you and I often talk about, probably just did for life is good, having to kick away out of the back straight. He, was a, he won the race at the furlong pole. But in country grammar, he was defeated by an interesting horse, interesting for two reasons. Of course, one, the controversial element of him being a, another chance to celebrate the training skills of Bob Baffert, which, of course, you know, resulted in people taking sides, as is usually the case. But second, and I think a more subtle and a more interesting point is, he effectively boosted the form of Saudi Arabian domestic yeah. racing. Yeah. So he's second to Emblem Road in the Saudi Cup. And this brings me on to a wider topic. And it's a topic you and I, Nick, have discussed now for years. For years, we've talked about how the hegemony of British and European racing, to a lesser extent, American racing as well, you know, was being eroded by the rise of other countries around the world. Now, obviously, Australian racing has been a very good standard in terms of sprints and occasionally over longer distances. But now I believe that there, down under, because of the huge prize money, that there is this gradual rising in quality reflected fully by TRC Global Rankings. And to that, we've now added the completely obvious dominance on the international stage of Japanese racing. But what this Dubai... World Cup result should tell us, apart from anything else, is that the Middle East, who are now investing, rather than being patrons of European racing solely, they're now investing in their own product. And we need to sit up and take notice that their own product is already significant on a global scale because of what this result says about the Saudi Cup. Okay, so with that in mind, then, I just want to read the top 10 countries where these horses are based. Hong Kong, Australia, 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 Japan, Australia, Japan, USA, Japan, USA. Now, is this not simply a function of recency? I, in the autumn, we we had sort of four British horses in the top 10, and and our season's not even going yet. So can we realistically expect in three or four months' time this to be seeded with, you know, a resurgent hurricane run, a resurgent a day are whatever Aiden's got that wins the guineas and the derby and blah, blah. Yes, we can. Now, when you do rankings, sometimes people say, well, there's too much recency in your rankings. But when you do rankings, rankings should be based around uncertainty. And as form ages, it gets more uncertain. Complicating that factor is the, the, the fact that there are um, retirals each year and injuries, which means, means horses aren't around. And just to remind listeners, After 150 days, horses drop out of the TRC global rankings. So this is the reason they stay in for that long, even after they've retired, is to give the rankings ballast. We don't want fake number ones who happen to be around in January just after everything else has signed off. 
So we keep horses in the rankings to make it a rolling kind of almost annual ranking. And this we found works in a predictive way by back testing our rankings in the past. And what I can tell you here is that, yes, it is true that the makeup internationally of the rankings at the moment is indeed a function of recency. It's also very worrying for British and European horses climbing the charts in the spring because the standard is higher. Because these horses, if you look back over previous years at this time of year, collectively, Japanese, Australian horses are better than they've ever been. Um, and that means that there's a bigger mountain to climb for horses from Europe and from Britain when they eventually start putting their form together. Now, at the moment, you mentioned, for example, Adeyar and Hurricane Lane. I would argue that both of those horses have got a bit of a cap to what they can achieve already. In both cases, we've kind of seen what they aren't. Mishrith is a horse that the TRC Global Rankings has been down on compared with, say, for example, the world's best racehorse ratings. You could say the same of Tarnawa and the middle distance horses, and, and the arc result empowered us a bit stronger uh, to believe in that. And then we've seen this gradual rise in American racing, the classic crop we liked last year, they didn't quite come through as much as we predicted. If you look at the charts now on thoroughbredracing.com, they are absolutely packed with Japanese horses, which we took criticism for a few years ago. And I think that the, the critics are, are now quiet on that one. But the next thing the rankings are shouting very loudly is Australian racing is miles better than it's ever been, I think, at the, at the mile and beyond in the recent past. I don't go back to the, the 50s or whatever. In the recent past, we've seen a ton of really good Australian sprinters uh, do their business around the world. But now we're starting to see some historically, some, some significant performances from the likes of Incentivize as well. Also, I think we'll hear a lot more of. But if you look down our rankings on thoroughbredracing.com and you can click on each horse and see their past performances, bear in mind this is a totally unbiased system. It's a system that always checks itself against future results. And it's telling you that horses like Anamo yeah. are global superstars at a mile and beyond. And we haven't seen that for a while. James, I, I, I don't want to sort of um, give more grist to the prize money mill because, my God, people must find it boring when, when we bang on about it on yeah. this show. But it's not a massive surprise, is it? We saw all the money no. that was on offer in Dubai last weekend and in Saudi a few weekends ago. With nothing, no great surprise there. The Middle East has always chucked loads of money at these events. But Euphoria, who runs in the um, Osaka High on, uh, on Sunday and will go number one if, if he wins, that's a $2.7 million job. Um, Randwick, the, horse that, uh, the, the race that the Crocs been talking about, it's a mile handicap on the turf. They're good horses, but they're not absolutely out of the top draw. It's, that's nearly a million pounds sterling to the winner, to the winner, right. the Star Doncaster right. mile. Zaki, the race the other day, was the richest turf mile race in the world, 1.2 million pounds sterling to the winner. It's not, it's not a massive surprise, this, is it? The, the, the cash is talking. No, it isn't, but there's a, there's, a, there's a factor that goes with the cash that's needed to make the cash count, enthusiasm. And enthusiasm for thoroughbred racing in Japan and in Australia is a lot higher than it is in Europe. And I think that is a subtle but very important factor in the, in the way that people, where people want to race their horses. Look at in the national hunt sphere, 
Why the obsession with Cheltenham? Everybody's watching. It, it, it makes performances and victories there so much more important socially amongst people that pay for resources to be kept in training or people that train them or spend their lives with them. It makes people feel a collective sense of greater importance in their lives and what their lives are, are, are spent doing. And I think that empowers performance because then people want to win that little bit much more than if nobody's watching or nobody cares or it's a bit of a backwater mm. or it's becoming or it's historically on the slide. And I think you can see the effects of that in Japan and in Australia. You've also got a point that was touched on, on has been touched on on your podcast a few times, which is the fact that in both Australia and Japan, there's this kind of the, the, the talents more thinly spread. Yeah, you have got Chris Waller, um, who's got under the horse and, and several of the trainers who, who are kind of of, of a size of those over here. But there's more of a talent distribution and that itself makes for more competition. But finally on this point, Nick, I think that British racing's pigeons are coming home to roost finally. For 20 years, people have said, how long can British racing survive on its reputation? On the fact that at Royal Ascot, the royal family rock up and it gives potentates from around the world the chance to kind of rub shoulders with with other royalty and that the whole thing becomes socially really important. It's worth keeping your horses in training for that and that alone. And you're prepared to absorb all the other costs. Well, I don't know. I think this is the period that pe that, that has been dreaded. British racing has got some very, very, very uh, good people in charge of the top tracks, I believe. Some people that are very visionary, that know what they're doing, like Nick Smith. And so therefore it's in good hands. But I think this is a, a really challenging period to keep our best racers, racers, uh, like the Judmont International at York, that's always come out as amongst the best, and then the plethora of, of races at Royal Ascot, they've always scored incredibly well. And, and, and we, it's good to see that all these international horses do want to come to Ascot. Of course they do, uh, for the time being. But how long will it continue that the most important races in the world happen to be run here in terms of ratings? I think that's already changing, and I think the next few years are going to see it change even more. James, thank you very much. The outstanding as ever, James Willoughby, back next week. All right, I'm going to get Jane Mangan's tip in a minute. But Jane, you've got a bit of a bit of news for us. Um, I, I've asked, been asking you for years why you made what I thought was a rather precipitous exit from the from the the jockeys' room yourself, and um, you're going to give it another go. Oh well, Nick, it was always the plan to come back, and um, I just have never had the. I suppose time that I wanted to, to, to vote to getting myself in good shape and fit. But I've been in the gym, been on the gallops. And um, my good friend Patrick Mullins has decided to step aside and allow me to to get a good job in Sutton. And I, I think that's that's wor one worth renewing uh, my license for. So you're going to go back, are you going to go, you're not turning pro though, you're going to stay as an, so you're going to take the amateur rise, or the, like the bumper rise and that sort of thing for, for Willie? Yeah, I think that's as good a job as a professional job in, in racing and jump racing anyway. You know, Willie's bumper horses are exceptional and if they don't get you excited, if they don't get you back in the gym working hard, then uh, I couldn't ask I couldn't ask for um, a more exciting venture, really. And is Patrick going to stay on? Patrick will stay on, presumably, sort of trade, do, looking after and training those bumper horses. You'll, you'll be riding them. Presumably, you can combine that with, with your TV work and hopefully still doing a few bits and pieces for... Um, le lesser mortals like me. 
Uh, that's how I started when I was writing bumpers and talking a little bit. Then I started to talk a lot and maybe now I, I need to just juggle a little bit more. But yeah, Patrick is obviously going to be very much involved and um, I'm not going to let you off that easy either. So the bumpers are at the back of the card in Ireland. So hopefully we'll get most of the main body of the card in before I um, get in the saddle. Grand. I'm looking forward to seeing you back uh, back on a race course, back in silks. Um, talking to someone who can multitask and somebody who you shared uh, jockey's room space with, Nina Carberry, in that brilliant victory in Dancing with the Stars, which we've not really talked about this week. It, it was magical. She, from start to finish, the improvement was unprecedented. I could not believe this was the same person. Now, you actually... When you were watching her dance, you were thinking, this confidence is just of a professional dancer. But of course, it's not unusual for Nina Carberry to win. And that's what she has spent her life doing. And I did feel somewhat sympathetic for her opponents, knowing how ferociously competitive Nina Carberry is. She was always going to give it a million percent. And I suppose she had a brilliant um, partner in Pasquale La Roca, and he was... Oh, he was he was so decisive. Each week they came out with a different dance. She had a couple of injuries along the way that she did not allow get in her way. And uh, when her name was called out as the winner of Dancing with Stars Ireland, it was no surprise. She has um, this level of competitiveness that you have to be born with. You can be determined, you can work hard, but she has this natural born instinct to win. And uh, it was a joy to watch. Uh- Jane, uh, before you go, give us a tip for today. I'm going to stay close to home. And Wexford, this evening's meeting, there is a chase at 6pm. Ben Dundee might have let down some punters in the Ultima at Cheltenham, but this is far from an Ultima at Cheltenham at 6pm today at Wexford. So for Andrew Lynch, Chris Jones and Keith Dunahoo, that trifecta I hope will be in the winner's enclosure shortly after 6pm. Jane, thanks so much. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget, Charlotte will be back this evening with the Saturday edition. That will be uploaded from 9 o'clock. You can hear the dog barking. I'll just have to ignore him for a few moments' time. She'll also be bringing you news of Charlie Appleby's running plans for his six stable stars, three three-year-olds, three older horses, for the next uh, few months. I'm looking forward to that. And I'll be back on Monday. If you do enjoy this podcast, please do be kind enough to leave us a rating and a review on your podcast provider. And we will see you after what hopefully is a profitable and fruitful weekend for you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Thank you.